So let's, let's say we were going to play a fill-in-the-blank game, and I gave you a card that said, it is good to blank. Now, what would you be most likely to write? Uh, maybe some of you would go sort of a big picture ethical direction. Uh, it is good to love others. Or, you know, it is good to do to others as you would have them do to you. Uh, or perhaps some of you would be a bit more personal with your cards. Uh, it is good to be in my safe place, curled up with a book and a cup of tea. Or it is good to be outside when the sun is shining and the birds are singing. Or it is good to go on a walk holding the hands of those I love. Or, or you know, maybe some of you kids out there would just go ahead and say, it is good to get cake and presents on my birthday. Now, I would not dare argue with the goodness of any of those things. But the question is, what is our greatest good? And for that, we need to hear from the one who designed us. And God tells us in Psalm 92 that what is good is for us to worship him. Uh, right? So verse 1, if you just look at verse 1, he says it is good to first give thanks, second to sing praises, and thirdly to declare God's steadfast love and faithfulness. Right? To give thanks, to sing, to declare who God is. That's worship, right? And, and that is what this psalm tells us is good. Now, perhaps there are some people in this room saying in their heads, Ash, you are crazy. You really expect me to believe that coming to church on Sunday to worship God is the greatest good. That's the best thing I can do. Uh, maybe there's a teenager here whose parents made them come thinking, I would much rather be at home playing video games right now. But what's crazy is ignoring the reality that you are tiny and sinful. And the one who made you and all that is around you is clearly massive and good. You really think you know better than him. What is good for you? If you are willing to listen, God will show you in Psalm 92 this morning what things will exalt him, what lifts him up. And you will find that these things, in fact, are also good for you. So the first thing that we see in this psalm is that uh, God is exalted in the gathered Lord's Day worship of his people. So my first point will be a Sabbath that exalts God. A Sabbath that exalts God. This psalm was intended to be sung on the Sabbath. We can see this from the title, uh, A Song for the Sabbath. So, you know, it was probably a little bit like how we sing um, the Gloria Patri uh, each week, or we sing the doxology, or sometimes we sing, We Give Thee But Thine Own. Perhaps, you know, the Levites or the whole congregation would um, open their time of, of worship by singing this psalm or close their time of worship by singing this song each week. This is the only psalm in the Bible that is marked a Sabbath song. 
So it gives us at least some direction on how we should exalt God on our Sabbath. So notice first, then, the goodness of Sabbath worship. The goodness of Sabbath worship. When the psalmist says, it is good to worship, he isn't simply saying it's a morally good thing to worship. He, he is saying that, of course, it is a good thing. But he's also saying it's a joyful and a restful activity. Uh, we see this a bit later in the text in verse 4. Uh, but hopefully some of you have, in fact, experienced this as well in worship. Duty, what God tells us to do, and pleasure combine in one activity that sets us free from the worries and the cares of this world and reminds us of the bigger picture. Uh, maybe you remember how we saw in my sermon on Psalm 73, this was maybe a month ago, that Asaph, who wrote the psalm, he could not see clearly until he came into the place of worship. He was like a beast until he came, and then he could see clearly. Or maybe you remember back to our series on King David and how, you know, David, when they brought the Ark of the Lord into Jerusalem, he danced before the Lord with hardly any clothes on, and his wife, Michael, looked on and despised him because she was thinking, that is not how a king and a warrior should be acting. But David didn't care because he wasn't thinking about himself. He was thinking about the Lord. When we truly Worship. Our eyes are pulled away from ourselves and all that we think we need. And we badly need that. Of course, there are many distractions when we come to worship. And they'll keep us from rest and from joy. And so we need to keep our eyes on the content of Sabbath worship, which is the next thing I want to notice in these first five verses. The content of Sabbath worship. And I... I mentioned the, the, major, the three major verbs that we see in the first couple uh, verses already. Um, thanksgiving, praise, and declaration. Or we could also translate this verb proclamation. Uh, now, you know, these aren't the only things we do in our worship today because there's other texts in the Bible that expand on what we do in worship. But um, certainly the, the, the focus of this psalm should be instructive to us because it's dramatically God-centered. Okay, so we, we thank God for his actions, we uh, praise his name, and we proclaim his character. Worship is always, in these three ways, always upward-focused. And, you know, this doesn't mean that what's happening down here in our lives doesn't matter to God. The rest of the psalm is going to get into those things. It's going to engage with those things. But the focus from the beginning is upward, and we always want to test our worship with that priority. Are we primarily looking up in our songs, in our preaching, in our attitudes? Or are we mostly looking in? Or around. Those things should happen too. We need to look in. We need to look around. But they cannot be the priority. The call to worship that begins our services helps us with this. By, by pointing us up right from the beginning. Here's where we start. This is the priority. 
You see, here's the danger. If worship becomes about you, a a therapeutic activity that you do to make yourself feel good, what happens when you don't feel like worshiping God? Is Sabbath worship still good, even if it doesn't bring you pleasure? Well, if it's truly not about you, then it is. And as you recommit yourself to prioritizing God in worship and and through prayer, you will find your joy restored, though it may be taken away for a time. Now we also learn something about the manner of Sabbath worship here in this psalm, the manner of Sabbath worship. We see that it is musical. Uh, And, you know, this is a theme that flows throughout all the psalms, as well as throughout the whole Bible. If you were to just kind of do a search through the Bible, looking for passages that talk about worship, you would constantly be finding a musical component popping up. Everywhere you looked, you'd find it. Uh, Even the worship of heaven and the angels is musical. Music stirs up our emotions, which, you know, when those emotions are in response to true belief, to to understanding, engages our whole being in worship. But the psalmist goes on then to talk about the works of God. And so we want to notice finally the fuel for Sabbath worship, the fuel For Sabbath worship, Uh, verses 4 and 5, they tell us that one of the things that can lead us into joyful worship is seeing the works of the Lord. And we can divide up God's works into his work of creation and his work of providence. So, you know, his, his work of making all the things that you see around you and his work for caring for all those things. When we truly live our lives stopping to see the works of God, we are led to sing for joy as we see the utter depth of his thoughts. Let me give you a practical example of this. Uh, Recently, my family has been visited in our home by a number of bats. Last week, we brought a a family home for Sunday lunch, and they were greeted by a bat. The week before that, uh, Bill and Lisa Tobin were watching our kids during the swing dance that we had here at the church. And, and, you know, Bill showed the true depth of skill that we require from elders here at Covenant. (laughs) He caught and removed that bat. Or maybe it was the same bat all along. I don't know. Now, this sort of thing could be just a great kind of annoyance to us or even a great embarrassment, perhaps, to us. But you know what? My kids have become fascinated by bats. They paint pictures of bats. They've got a little uh, a book from the Tobins, thank you, about a friendly little bat. And I am led to say through this experience, wow, these bats are actually very neat. They're very cool, you know? God made them with these little squeaks and this strange way of flying, this incredible sense of direction, these little grippy talons. And that leads us, when we begin to think about these things, to say, God, you are amazing. You really are. How deep your thoughts are that you would make a creature like this. 
This is what science and mathematics and literature and, and all that seeks to explain the world around you do for us. When we understand this world is made by God, these are His works. They, they draw us more and more to admire and worship the one who made all of these things. When you get little glimpses of God's death in the world that you see around you, don't hesitate to react in worship. Lord, what a sky you've rolled out tonight. Lord, what a beautiful flower. Thank you, God. Thank you for this tiny little bug. Or, you know, when you see that uh, embarrassing quirk in someone that you love and you can't help but smile. Or, or you know, you, you notice something funny happening along with someone across the room and you both start to laugh. Right? These circumstances of our lives, these are moments to take with you into worship. The Lord makes us glad with the works of his hands. Now, of course, within God's providential care for the world is the special way in which he, he cares for his people. He saves them. He redeems them. And so um, the Israelite people would have thought probably of their uh, God saving them out of slavery in Egypt. And, and you and I can rejoice in our freedom from slavery to sin and death. This is the grace that we are most undeserving of. This is the gift that costs God most personally. And this is the gift that demands our worship. God gives us Jesus to redeem us. And we see our need for that redemption every day because we sin every day. And so every day we say, blessed be the name of the Lord. He has redeemed my life from the pit. His light has shone in my heart and awakened me to know his love. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Thank you for new life. Thank you for being my redeemer. But now our psalm shifts dramatically in verse 6. And so we've got to turn to my second point, a judgment that exalts God. A judgment that exalts God. Judgment is not typically one of our favorite topics. And so it might surprise you that a psalm that was regularly sung on the Sabbath includes all these verses about judgment. Yet judgment is a key part of God's exaltation. Uh, in fact, just notice the structure of this psalm, okay? So verse 7, if you look at verse 7, it's got three lines about the doom of the wicked. And then verse 8 is just one line because it's the exact center of the psalm. And then on the other side, in verse 9, we've got uh, three more lines about the doom of the wicked. So verse 8, which gives us the central theme of the text, God is on high forever is surrounded by his commitment to judge the wicked. And we need to be reminded that there is a lot more riding on God's justice than we think. If God is not just, then nothing is guaranteed. Neither grace nor judgment whether you do right or wrong no longer has any meaning. And 
So existence no longer has meaning. God's judgment is at the core of his rule of this world, just like justice is at the center of any functional government, right? For a government to work, it has to have a system of justice. Read, you know, the Lord of the Flies or just watch uh, a bunch of young kids unsupervised for a little while. They will either work out some system of justice for themselves, have no contact with each other whatsoever if they can do that, or things will fall apart very badly. If God is not just, then he is either not good or he is not all-powerful. And if he is not those things, he is not worthy of our worship. But if he is like the psalmist says he is here, then he is the only one worthy of our worship. Now, when you think about the way God's judgment is described in Psalm 92, it's also important to remember how different the world was when this psalm was written. Those who wrote this psalm and and sang it uh, each Sunday to one another were under almost constant vicious attack from surrounding nations. They had family members who'd been killed, uh, children dragged off to slavery, houses burned. It is rare that we personally experience that kind of human wickedness, which can make it difficult to relate to texts like this. Moreover, we should, we should notice that the nation of Israel at that time was chosen by God as his people. So any attack against them uh, warranted his judgment. It was an attack against God. And, and, and then further, we should say that Israel had been given an explicit command by God at that time to destroy the surrounding nations because their wickedness had reached a level at which God had said, these people need to be judged. That's a very different situation than we are in. We also have been given an explicit commission, but not to destroy, right? Rather, to plead with our enemies to repent. And so when we consider God's judgment in our context here, the most immediate application that we pray for is the defeat of the spiritual powers of evil that we see at work all around us in the world, in people, in cultures, in governments, in corporations. Uh, The Apostle Paul describes this approach in in, in Ephesians 6.12. He says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's these big picture enemies that we ask God to judge now. And these are the enemies for you to have in mind as you pray, verse 11. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The evil assailants that most of us face are the devil, his minions, the world forces he uses against us and his church, and the wickedness of our own flesh. And verse 11 reminds us 
that for those who follow the Lord who is exalted on high, these enemies of ours are as good as defeated. Notice that present tense there in verse 11. Meanwhile, the, the flesh and the blood enemies that surround us are those that we plead with God to save. And yet, we must know and we must recognize this, hard as it is, that, that the people of this world, if they reject God's mercy, they will one day be found out by God's justice. For the wicked that sprout like grass today, on that final day, will be doomed to destruction forever. We do not exalt the Lord as truly just if we hide that truth from ourselves and from each other and from the world. But now finally, this song of the Sabbath moves to present us with a contrast uh, to the wicked. Uh, the life of the righteous. And so let's look at my third point now. A life that exalts God. A life that exalts God. You know, some of you may not know this, but the gardens here at Covenant have actually been split up between different people in the church who fancy themselves gardeners and have time for a second garden. <laughs> and what this does is it allows you to know exactly who to complain to if you see weeds <laughs> out there. And, you know, another thing hopefully it does is it, it creates some healthy competition because the, the beauty of a well-placed, healthy plant brings the gardener glory. Right? But, of course, all human gardeners ought to know that they are highly dependent upon the divine Gardener. Many of the things that make a garden successful depend on him. The rain, the wind, the sun, the bugs, uh, the worms, uh, the temperatures, the hedgehogs. All of these things look to God as their master. And so God ultimately gets the glory for the gardens here at Covenant. But not just the physical ones outside, right? But the figurative ones inside. You, the plants of this church. Psalm 92 shows us that the lives of the righteous can be pictured as plants. Verse 12. And so the believer who sings this psalm on the Sabbath sees himself through God's eyes as a flourishing palm tree or a cedar in Lebanon. These trees are beautiful, tall, regal royal trees that grow all year round. They are evergreens, both of them. Unlike the grass that sprang up in the desert world of this psalmist, which died as soon as the dry season hit. Nobody planted grass in that world. Nobody had uh, sprinklers out on their front lawn. But where you saw a palm tree or a cedar, you knew there was water. And that water is found in the house of the Lord. Verse 13 tells us that's where they were planted. The source of their life is their connection to God. So what does it look like to be planted in the house of the Lord? In the Old Testament, God's house was the temple. Now it's the body of Christ. 
And the practical way for you to be a part of the body of Christ is to unite yourself to a local church where you receive weekly spiritual food that grows you. Teaching from God's word, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer and fellowship and accountability. You don't receive these things outside of a local body of believers. And you don't also receive them by just being present, let me say. But through faithful, intentional participation. You do. And you grow. You have to come into worship committed to active participation. This is so important. Don't get distracted by the people around you or the, the song you didn't like as much or you know that awkward joke that the worship leader made that nobody got or the part of the pastor's sermon that was just a little bit rocky. Don't get distracted by those things. Invest yourself in knowing the Lord and you will come to know him. But do not expect such grace if you come with little commitment or you allow yourself to daydream away or fall into discontent. And there's this beautiful image that hopefully calls us to this in, in, in uh, verse 14 of the ideal senior citizen believer. He's full of sap and green. The psalm says, still bearing fruit, having soaked up the grace of God their whole life as they grew in the midst of other believers, serving, being served. And now, even as their body wastes away, still bearing fruit, still living, spiritually alive and feeding those around them with sweet testimonies from their years of trusting Christ. This is the life that exalts God, the beauty of the plant brings glory to the one who planted it, pruned it, and gives it a home. Maybe you're a child or a teenager who's not yet sure what it means to exalt God. Maybe you're a young adult whose life doesn't feel quite launched or who isn't quite committed to God all the way. Maybe you're middle-aged and a bit disappointed. Maybe you're old and a bit regretful. Come and sing a song for the Sabbath. Start with exalting the Lord. There's still time to bear fruit, even in old age. If you surrender your life to the Lord, He will plant it in His garden. And when you look back from his house in heaven, you will cry, how great are your works, O Lord, and the work you will be rejoicing over will be your life. You will be the palm tree. You will be the cedar. Do you believe that is possible? You say to me, as you don't know the mess I've made of my life. You are a good guy trying to cheer me up, but it doesn't work that way for people like me. And you're right, I probably don't know you, but I do know Jesus Christ, and here's what he says to you. He says, take off your dirty robes and wear mine. Cleanse your corrupted flesh in my blood. 
This terrible past is not your future. These horrible memories need not define you. I'm not out looking for the cream of the crop. I want those who want me. And those who ask me into their life, I will make the righteous. Because truly, look at verse 10. It was Jesus whose horn was exalted when he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. It was Jesus who was anointed with oil, commissioned not just as a prophet, but as the prophet, priest, and king. The one who speaks to us, that's what prophets do, who dies for us, that's what priests do, and leads us, that's what kings do. It was Jesus who defeated our enemies and will crush them under our feet at the last day, which means... He has the power to make you a tree in the house of God so that when you ask him to be your Lord and Savior, you also can sing to God, I have deserved nothing, but because of Christ, you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You've poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. And dear brothers and sisters, if that is the song you can sing with me today, then let's make sure we end with verse 15. For the Lord is to be exalted in all things. The Lord is upright. He is our rock. And there is no unrighteousness in him. Our God is altogether good. And so it is good this morning to exalt the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do exalt you. We do lift you up. We are confronted, indeed, by our failure to do so. We ask that you would show us the work of your hands around us. You would show us the need for justice that only you can supply. You would show us, Lord, how you view us when we claim you as our king, as trees that will grow and be beautiful, and, Lord, that will be able to look back on the lives that you gave us with joy, seeing, Lord, that we were a work of your hands. We were planted by you. Lord, we pray that this morning we would exalt you, and we thank you for our King, Jesus, who was exalted, Lord, that we might be made your people. We pray this in his name. Amen.